Our text this morning is 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, verses 1 through 5. If you're using a Bible from the pew in front of you, you can find that text on page 992. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I think what Paul is doing in these five verses is showing from his own experience why there is so much boasting and pride and divisiveness at Corinth. Namely, that the cross of Christ has been bracketed out of the present, relegated to the past, so that it has no present crucifying effect on the lives of these people. They are people who have advanced beyond the cross. Christ may have had to appear weak. Christ may have had to look foolish. Christ may have had to be humiliated, but not us. Because he purchased for us something more. We are kings. We are filled We are wise. We are strong. And Paul wrestles with all his might in these first chapters of 1 Corinthians to show them they're making a terrible mistake. I want you to look at one of the places outside our text where Paul wrestles ironically with this issue. Look at chapter 4, if you have a Bible. Verses 8 to 10. And I'm going to try to use my tone of voice to interpret the irony of this text. If you just started reading this text out of the blue, I don't think you would know right off the bat that this is irony. You would pick it up a few verses later when he turns it on its head. But let's read it together, verses 8 to 10, to show them how wrong they are about their conception of themselves. He says, already you are filled. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, and would that you did reign, clearly implying they don't, so that we may share with you the rule. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We're weak, but you are strong. Now stop right there a minute. Did you notice those two words? Do you remember those two words coming before in this book? We are weak and we are fools. Weakness and foolishness. Where have we heard that before? Well, we've heard it from chapter 1, verse 23, 24, describing the cross. The cross is the weakness of God and it's stronger than man. The cross is the foolishness of God and it's, and it's wiser than man. What's he doing here then? He's saying, 
I eat the cross. I am the cross. I live the cross. My whole life is stamped by the cross. Okay? You got it? Move on in verse 10. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Now, to see what use he's making of this, drop down to verse 16, where he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. In other words, they're so wrong about their understanding of the cross. They're so wrong. They think that the cross is way back there in the past. It's a once for all thing on which Jesus died to purchase for them strength, wisdom, power, kingly dignity. And they don't hear Jesus at all saying, take up your cross every day and die on it. They weren't taking up their cross daily. They were taking up their scepter daily. They weren't taking up their cross daily. They were sitting on their thrones daily. Now, what's going on here? What's wrong with these people? What's their misapprehension or misconception of the Christian faith? It's a problem with understanding the purposes of God in redemptive history. Let me try to put it in a sentence. They're making this mistake. They are leaving in the past what ought to be brought into the present as a life-changing power, namely the cross, and they are reaching out into the age to come and trying to drag into the future realities intended for the age to come, and in the process, they are contaminating them with pride and power-grabbing. They've got their whole understanding of the history of redemption confused. The cross isn't intended to be left behind. It's intended to be lived and died on every day. The cross is to stamp our lives, according to Paul. And the age to come with its streets of gold and its ruling over the world which he talks about in chapter 6, isn't to be drug into this fallen age of futility. We're not fit for it yet. There's a confusion about what is present and past and future. And Paul is writing these chapters to try to clarify, I think, the role of the cross in determining the present life of the believer. The result, of course, of what they were doing is that they were emptying the cross of its effect. Chapter 1, verse 17. And they were contaminating the rightful privileges of the glorified saints by misusing them and misappropriating them in the present. And Paul's doing what he can to overcome that. And I used the phrase at the table and I'll use it again. The cross is not merely a past place of substitution. It is a present place of execution. The execution of my pride, the execution of my self-reliance, the execution of my love of money and the love of the praise of men and the love of comforts. Now, in verses 1 to 5, Of chapter 2, what Paul wants to do, I think, 
is illustrate from his own experience the present power of the cross and what effect it should have upon a believer. And I'd like to try to lay out the building blocks of this text for you to see one at a time and then look at a few of them together. What I see in this text are, first of all, two negative statements about how Paul did not come to Corinth. Secondly, I see two positive statements about how he did come to Corinth. Thirdly, I see him state the ground or the reason for why he came the way he did in verse 2, namely the cross. And I see in verse 5 the goal for why he came the way he came, namely so that faith wouldn't rest in him but in God's power. Let's take those one at a time. First of all, the two negative statements of how he did not come to Corinth. The first one is in verse 1. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty words of wisdom. So he says how he did not come, not proclaiming the testimony of God in lofty words or wisdom. Second negative statement of how he did not come. Verse 4. My speech and my message were not in plausible or persuasive words of wisdom. And all of that is an echo of what we've seen already, isn't it? Back in chapter 1, verse 17, it says, God didn't send me to baptize, he sent me to preach, and not with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross be emptied. Now, when you stop and think about this, it sounds a little troubling, because when you read the letters of Paul, you open this book and read Romans, for example, This man was no dummy. He's one of the most profound thinkers that ever lived. The book of Romans has had a greater effect on the human race than any other writing. And when you read the way he uses language, he's no dummy. He can powerfully turn language for positive and negative effects. So what does this mean when he says, I didn't come to you in wisdom or in, in uh, eloquence or uh, speech of a certain kind. I think it means something like this. I never tried to flaunt my intellectual ability, nor did I engage in oratorical flourishes, because I didn't want to use anything that might win a following from people by appealing to what they are attracted by in their worldliness. I don't want a following like that, he says. I don't want people to follow me because I'm intelligent or because I'm eloquent. That's the point of saying, I didn't come that way. I wasn't seeking that kind of following. I was striving not to give that impression, but to point everything to Christ and Him crucified. So that's the description of how He did not come. Now, how did He come? There are two statements regarding how He did come. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling. And then the second statement, that is positive and describes how he did come, is at the end of verse 4, after he says he didn't come with plausible or persuasive words of wisdom, it says his speech uh, and his message were in demonstration of the Spirit and power. 
So, you take those two together, and what you see is a man who, when he came to Corinth, was weak in his bearing or demeanor. He was fearful. He was trembling. He was uh, demonstrating the spirit and power. Now, let's, let's think about these. What is this weakness here? What does Paul mean that he came, and when he came, he was weak? Over in 2 Corinthians, there are several places where the Apostle Paul tells us what his opponents at Corinth were saying about him. And one of them is chapter 10, verse 10, and it goes like this. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. It's despicable, literally. Now, there's the word weak. Evidently, when people looked at Paul, they were not impressed. He didn't cut awake and cause people to kind of, whoa, this is somebody you better really stand up and listen to. They didn't. He came off as weak. And therefore, his opponents used it against him. Now, what was it about Paul's appearance... Or demeanor, or, or was it more than that, that made him come off that way? I went over to Galatians, chapter 4, verse 13, and found something very interesting. Because when Paul describes to the churches in Galatia how they first received him, just like here he's describing how he first came to Corinth, there's a remarkable parallel. Let me read you this verse from Galatians 4.13 and 14. You know it was because of a bodily ailment. Now, that word ailment is the same word as weakness right here in verse 3 of our text. Because of a bodily weakness that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God. Now, isn't that interesting? He says, when I came to the churches of Galatia, there was something wrong with me. An ailment, a weakness, so that you could have, had you not been kind, despised me. He looked very unappealing. What is this? What is it about Paul that is marked as weak, almost despicable? And unattractive in his appearance. I really do believe it's connected with the thorn in the flesh. And the reason I do is, is a, there are a couple reasons. The, the thorn in the flesh is described in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And in those verses, uh, Paul says that he asked the Lord to take this thorn in the flesh away three times. And the Lord said no. And you know how the Lord responded. He said, no, because my power will be made perfect in your what? Weakness. And it's the same word that's used in Galatians 4 and in uh, 1 Corinthians 2. And so I'm inclined to think that when Paul said, I'll all the more gladly boast then in my weaknesses, for when I am weak, then am I strong, or then does the power of Christ rest upon me, he was exulting in whatever it was that came across to these people as 
unimpressive. And here's the second reason I think there's a link up with the uh, thorn in the flesh. Jesus says that the reason, or Paul giving the Lord's rationale for why he leaves the thorn in the flesh in Paul's body, is that you might not be, uh, and I think a a good translation would be something like overinflated, overly uh, puffed up with your abilities as an apostle, which ties exactly in with the use Paul made of his weakness in chapter 2 and the use he made of his thorn in chapter 12, namely exalting and boasting in it that the, the power of Christ might rest upon him. So I think, I don't know, an eye disease some people think, maybe it ran and was very unattractive. Uh, maybe a back problem that he stood stooped or funny. Uh, maybe a lisp in his speech, since it's sometimes connected with his despicable speech. Here was a man who did not impress when he spoke, and he never hid it. He exulted in it. Because it gave an occasion for all glory and power to go to Christ. The connection that he makes in our text with uh, power is very, very significant. But we'll come back to that in a moment. Let's go to the term fear and trembling. What does fear and trembling mean? He came in weakness and in fear and trembling. Well, at least I would say it means this. He didn't come cocky. He didn't come with a swagger. He didn't come with ostentation or vanity or pomposity or with his nose in the air saying, you better listen to me because I am the great Apostle Paul. But on the contrary, his hands were sweaty in the palms and they shook. There was a butterfly in his stomach when he stood up to preach. And I think the reason was, as you look at the rest of the book, a profound sense of his own inadequacy, the profound sense of the, the eternality of the stakes here, and the real dangers at Corinth. I mean, when you read the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 10, Christ had to come to him in a dream in the middle of the night and say, don't be afraid, Paul, keep on preaching and I'll take care of you. It was dangerous. Most of us have no idea what it means to be a Christian in a dangerous place. Believe me, it will make you experience fear and trembling. And somebody might say, well, wait a minute. I thought Christians were supposed to be fearless and confident people. Don't they have God on their side? And if he is for us, who can be against us? And as I thought about that, uh, I read a great couple sentences from John Calvin on this text who knew a lot about persecution and suffering and opposition And what he says about Paul's suffering here and his fear, I think, is exactly right. And so I want to read it. Calvin says, The servants of the Lord are not so dull as not to see threatening dangers, nor so insensitive as not to be affected by them. No. In fact, they must be seriously apprehensive for two reasons. One, 
that humbled in their own eyes, they might learn to lean and rest completely on God alone. And that secondly, they might be trained in true self-denial. Paul, therefore, was not without a sense of anxiety, but he controlled it so that he nonetheless continued to be undaunted in the midst of crises. In other words, if you never tasted fear, if you never once tasted trembling, you would very likely begin to take for granted your own abilities and your own courage and your own heroic uh, powers. Whereas once you taste the fear, then you fly to Christ, then you get sustenance to carry through, then you know who's helping you. That seems to be the dynamic that Paul experienced. That's what I experienced. That's what Calvin said is normal Christian living. And I think he's right. You will get into circumstances in your life in which there will be trembling, there will be fear, there will be sensed weakness. And then you cry to God and God meets you in those moments of fear and sustains you as a trembling child through the doing of your duty. Now, what's all this got to do with the cross? He's trembling, he's fearful, he's weak, he's unimpressive, he avoids flourishes of oratory, he avoids intellectual ostentation. What's all that got to do with the cross? It's got everything to do with the cross. And verse 2 shows what it has to do. You see the little word that uh, starts verse 2 there? The word for or because providing the ground or the reason why Paul came to Corinth the way he did. He says, it's because I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. The explanation, the bottom line explanation for why Paul was willing to come in weakness and why he denied himself the glory-getting powers of oratory and intellectual display is Christ crucified. I don't think that means that the only thing he spoke about during the 18 months he was in Corinth was the cross. We know that because when you read the rest of the book, you find him scolding the Corinthians for not understanding things which are more than the cross because they should have remembered the things that he said, which were more than the cross. Well, what does it mean then that he decided not to know anything but the cross? I think it means something like this. If I know anything else or say anything else or or do anything else, I want to know it and say it and do it in relationship to and conformity to Christ crucified. I want everything in my life to reflect Christ crucified. I want everything to be shaped by the cross. I want to make my tents in the shadow of the cross. I want to preach my sermons in the shadow of the cross. I want to dispute with my opponents in the shadow of the cross. I want to eat and drink and sleep Christ crucified so that I can say for me to live is Christ crucified. And the effect that had on him was to make him a humble and broken-hearted, loving servant of the people of God. So out of step with the glory-grubbing world that we live in that the only explanation for the Apostle Paul is the power of God. 
Now, I haven't said much about the word power in verse 4 and verse 5, so I want to wrap things up by tying in this word power to the weakness that Paul came in and try to define what this power is that he refers to here. You see at the end of verse 4, it says that he came and that his message was in the demonstration of the Spirit and power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power, there it is again, of God. Now, a lot of people take this to mean miracles. He did miracles in order to authenticate his speech as being uh, authoritative and true. And I don't want to dispute for one minute that Paul did miracles. You can see it in the book of Acts. You can see it in his own testimony in his writings. I don't think that's what this word power means here, however. And I'll try to show you why. The closest analogy or parallel to what we're reading here is what comes before in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. It's a remarkable parallel, in fact, and leaves the word power ringing in our ears in a very different way than miracles. Now, verse 17 uses the word power in the NASB, and I mean, in the, the NASB doesn't have it, but the NIV and uh, the RSV have it. It's not in the Greek, but I think it's right to put it in because it's picked up from the next verse. Let me read it with the word there, and you'll see that, I think. Christ did not send me to baptize. This is 117. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom. There's the connection with our text. Lest the cross of Christ should be emptied, nullified, made vain or void. And I think it's right to say powerless. That is emptied of power because you read on and it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is power. The power of God. So, just from that text alone, with all of its connections with our text today, I would say the first assumption anybody should make in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 2 is that the power of God referred to is none other than the word of the cross. The power of the word of the cross. Now, here's a second reason that I think this. Look at verses 23 and 24 and 25 of chapter 1. What you see there, remarkably, is two kinds of people. One kind wants a display of intellectual power, right? The Greeks seek wisdom. Come on, show us if you're worth listening to your mental apparatus. And there's another group of people who want what? They want signs. What are signs? They're miracles. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. Come on. Give us a reason to believe that you're the Messiah. Physician, heal yourself. They're saying the same things in Corinth that they were saying outside Jerusalem. Come on. If you're an authoritative spokesman of the Messiah, give us some power. Give us some miracles. And Paul, over against the demand for miracles, puts what? The word of the cross, and he calls it the power of God. So that all the more so am I not inclined to interpret this word power in verse 4 as miracles. In fact, I see it as a critique of an overemphasis on miracles. Isn't that remarkable? Especially in our day. And I want to say something here with regard to the movement of signs and wonders. Not 
as a sweeping away of the legitimacy of miracles. I believe in miracles. I think we ought to pray for the healing of the sick in our church and lay our hands on them and do it more often and more concertedly than we are. And we have seen God do some great things among us when we've done that. And you shouldn't be ashamed or hesitant to call for the leaders of the church to anoint you with oil and to pray over you for healing. But what I'm concerned about is that when you talk about power, you don't miss the keynote of the apostle, which stands over against miracles. The keynote of power in the apostolic preaching is the word of the cross and a crucified preacher is the power of God, not the sign worker and not the man who speaks with wisdom. This is a remarkable passage for our day, brothers and sisters. Paul is not indicting the possibility or goodness of miracles. He's guarding against an over-reliance upon them, a miss. Uh, judgment about their relative place in the whole dimension of evangelism. For Paul, the cross preached by a crucified preacher was the power of God. Verse 18 of chapter 1 and verse 23 to 25 of chapter 1 and verse 4 and 5 of chapter 2. Paul, I believe, wanted more than anything else to get out of the way of the power of God. Just get out of the way. And he struggled, and I struggle, and you struggle with how do you get out of the way? How do you preach so that people don't love the preacher? How do you witness so that people don't depend on you? How do you lead a Bible study so that you don't become the foundation of it, but the Bible and God become the foundation of it? He wanted to get out of the way. He dreaded. Wouldn't you agree from verse 5 that he dreaded anyone pinning their hope and faith on him as a preacher with his wisdom or his eloquence? And so what did he do dreading this and longing to get out of the way so that the power of God could come through and be the foundation of their faith? He died. He says every day. I think that's what verse 2 means. I decided not to know anything in my life but a crucified life. I decided not to do anything but a crucified way. I decided not to speak any word but a crucified word. For me to live is Christ and Christ crucified. That's the only way I know how to get out of the way. And so he died to intellectual show. He died to impressive eloquence. He died to the secular demands for a suave, self-assured, powerful, attractive media performance. He died to that. And this morning, I think he says to us as we close, I came to you in weakness and in fear and trembling in order... That your faith and my faith might not be in the wisdom of a man, but in the power of God. And so my closing plea is to beg you not to leave the cross back there in the dim and dusty past where it's just a relic 
even if it's a relic of the substitutionary atonement, so that you can now bask in all the benefits of the king. Don't do that. This text says, bring the cross out of the past as an executionary instrument into the present and die on it. And Jesus says, every day, every day. And don't reach out to the future, to the streets of gold and the kingly dignity of the glorified saints and try to drag them inappropriately into the present where they become so contaminated and so misused in our power grubbing. Leave them there and walk the Calvary road, which ends there, not the streets of gold. Leave them for the age to come. And so I beseech you this morning, if you're a believer, stay on the Calvary road. Put your footsteps in the footsteps of the Savior. Take your cross upon your back. Know that the most fulfilling life is not a life lived for your own private and immediate worldly pleasures. The most fulfilling life lived is a life of denial to those desires and those dependence on comforts and a life of radical service and giving yourself away for the good of other people and the glory of the cross. And Paul says that the best way to glorify the cross is to be on it. And if you're not a Christian, you need to make a decisive break with self-reliance and self-exaltation. This morning, you can decisively, by the power of the Holy Spirit, say... I am breaking with it. And I turn from sin. I take my step right onto the Calvary road. I look to Jesus, my only hope of forgiveness. And by His power, I'm going to follow Him in the way to Calvary. And beyond it, glory. If I were Tony Campalo, you know what I'd say, don't you? It's Friday and Sunday's coming. Let's pray. Almighty God, I want so much to learn how to do this. I just beg for your help. How to preach so that you are seen. How to pray and counsel and lead into a building program so that Christ crucified is the hallmark of everything we do and are and think and feel. Oh, Lord, teach us the mystery and the glory, yes, even the glory of walking the Calvary road in this age of futility. And Lord, for those in our midst right now who've not stepped onto that road, who've not hidden themselves in the shadow of the cross, I pray that they would decisively move right now onto that road, under that shadow,